Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 25A, an interview on how McKinley changed American political campaigns forever with Christopher Nichols. I'm excited to welcome Professor Christopher McKnight Nichols to the show today. Chris is the director of the Oregon State University Center for the Humanities and an expert on the Gilded Age, Progressive Era, World War I, and the 1918 flu pandemic. He has also written or edited numerous books, including A Companion to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and Promise in Peril, America at the Dawn of the Global Age. Today, we're going to talk about the man who led America into that global age, William McKinley, and how he modernized American political campaigns. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Kenny, thanks for having me on. And just at the outset, I want to say I really love your podcast. I think it's great how you choose sort of pithy examples that are fun from history that also smuggle in some great, important historical insights. So thanks. I really appreciate that. That's so kind of you. Uh, but my first question I got to ask of you is what inspired your interest in Mr. William McKinley? Yeah, so uh, William McKinley, probably not that well known, kind of overshadowed by Teddy Roosevelt. Um you know, his, his vice president, he's known for being assassinated, that sort of thing. What got me interested in him actually first was the Spanish-Cuban-American-Filipino War, uh, doing research for the book that you just mentioned, Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age. Um, and, you know, McKinley has this really important role in the U.S.'s first uh, overseas war with a, with a, a European power, with Spain, uh, the first annexations that the U.S. has outside the continent. So you're going to be talking about that soon in your, in your next shows, I'm sure. Um, so that that's really formative and important. And I think it. It, that was that got me interested. And then a second element, as I did more research on McKinley, that that um, is a little bit more fine grained, but I think listeners might be interested in um, is that McKinley's kind of a transitional figure in the Republican Party. Uh, so I was doing a lot of research on people like Henry Cabot Lodge, a senator from Massachusetts, or Teddy Roosevelt, who we all know. Um, they're like the younger guard of the Republican Party. Um, McKinley's in, in this interesting position. He serves in the Civil War. He's a, he's a Republican of that stripe, but he's not one of the oldest ones either. He's not the old guard who are the abolitionist types of the 1840s, 1850s. So he's, he's this transitional figure. In 1896, he's a little bit more out front on progressive things than even Teddy Roosevelt would have been. Um, but by the time it's 1900 and, and at the very end of his life, 1901, when he's assassinated, he's actually a little bit behind those folks now, uh, the new young Republicans who are coming up. And so as I studied those folks, I thought, wow, you know, McKinley uh, kind of is this transitional figure in the political thought, practice, policies of the Republican Party, sort of emblematic of this era. So I'm glad to be talking about it with you. Awesome. Yeah. When I was reading his history, so much of what you said pops out and it's been such a fun story to tell. Uh, now, in particular, the selection of 1896, McKinley, he's really going to kind of transform American politics that year. But the foundation of that campaign seems to be laid many years earlier, uh, when he becomes a friend of big business with his tariff policies, and when he befriends the political operative Mark Hanna. Let's start with the tariffs. What did he do and why will this be important later? Yeah, it's a good good question. So tariffs are the most important political issue in the late 19th century. And if you're thinking about them much in the 21st century, if you're trying to teach, if you're doing research, they are often pretty boring. Um, but that's what most of the political debates revolve around. You flip open the congressional record to almost any any era in, in this period, any, any month, any day, and you'll find something relating to tariffs. Why? Well, there's sort of two issues there, and the Republicans are leaders in this, protectionist tariffs in this period. But the two main issues are, one, it's how 
how the federal government raises uh, revenue. Uh, it's a big part of that. You've got that and vice taxes, basically. That's it. Uh, and, they're, and they're raising a bunch, as you know. So there's a surplus, uh, more or less, in this period. So then Republicans, the second piece of that is, you know, what are you going to do with the surplus? And what's the tariff intended to do? Um, and that's, that's the question for Republicans. It's actually a really important question for intellectuals in this period. Um, new, the new sort of fields of the social sciences and economics are trying to make arguments for why protective tariff, tariffs might work. Um, and this goes back the main one that somebody like McKinley would have subscribed to goes all the way back to the beginning. Alexander Hamilton in the 1790s basically said, um, to nurture infant industries, you need to have high protective tariffs. Uh, and that's that's the key element that, that somebody like um, the Ohio industrialists like Hannah, but also uh, McKinley buy into why they're for uh, protective tariffs. And it's a central argument for Democrats um, going the other direction. So uh, in, in his first inaugural, I think it is Grover Cleveland spends almost all his time uh, talking about tariffs uh, and wanting to reduce them. Uh, and, you know, again, this seems pretty boring to the modern ear, but it's absolutely crucial if you think about how the government's funded, where, where your priorities are domestically. Um, um, so, what, so what's the story? What, what gets uh, McKinley on, on the scene? Uh, 1890, the so-called McKinley tariff uh, is this big move. It, it raises tariffs all, all across the board. There's something like 450 amendments to the McKinley tariff. Um, it it uh, creates the moniker for McKinley, uh, the Napoleon of protection or little Napoleon, <laughs> um, you know, and, and he sort of seems to the political, you know, cartoons of the era have him striding around as this kind of colossus or mini colossus, if you're taking the Napoleon line uh, on, on holding the line on protective tariffs. Um, so they eliminated, uh, there was some elimination of tariffs in there, but mostly it was, it was raising tariffs up in 1890. And the idea was that this would protect domestic industries. Uh, but there's a big issue in this moment, and maybe this is worth bringing out, we could talk about it more later. The American economy is changing. So it used to be that there was a lot more being um, imported than exported. Uh, but, but by the late 19th century, that's shifted. And so the US is exporting a hell of a lot. Um, and so high protective tariffs, if they're reciprocated by other countries, are now becoming a problem. So if other countries uh, match the tariff rates that the U.S. has uh, on the same kinds of goods that the U.S. might be producing, that's a problem. Uh, and so this is what this, the, the core of the debates are about when you get down to the details in the 1880s and 1890s, which, which particular goods, especially raw materials, should have uh, tariffs and, and more refined uh, kinds of goods. Tin plates is one of them that gets debated all the time in this period. Uh, and how high should the tariffs be? Because that's a big thing that's being imported by American businesses. If you fast forward that, you know, about a decade after McKinley tariff, while he's still in office, uh, the U.S. industries are finally built, making a lot of tin plates themselves. Um, uh, but it comes at a big cost to consumers. So that's the other piece of this puzzle. Who's going to pay the bill for this? And as we all know from the recent debates in just the last few years, when the Trump administration was was uh, imposing protective tariffs, it's consumers who pay. Uh, and in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, with cyclic downturns, regular consumers are having a hard time making uh, ends meet. Uh, so this Republican tariff policy looks a lot like protecting big business. So um, that also generates all the, all the elements that you'd imagine for having people like Hannah and others in, uh, in the camp of McKinley helping support sort of uh, this, this wave of protective tariff policies and politicians. Let's, let's dive in on who you just mentioned, Mark Hanna. Who was Mark Hanna and why was he a big deal? Yeah, so Mark Hanna is a really 
interesting figure. He, he becomes a prominent politician. Um, like so many of the folks you've been talking about the last few weeks, probably in episodes, um, Ohio politics dominate. Uh, and um, he's an Ohioan uh, through and through. Um, he's, he's in there with uh, a number of figures, uh, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, he, he's trying to, to prop up the, the Ohio Republican Party and push it forward as the national sort of um, the determining factor for national Republican politics as well. Um, so he's a businessman uh, born in Ohio, uh, becomes friends with um, with McKinley in, in about 1880. Um, he he uh, takes over. Uh, he's in the coal business. He starts in the in the grocery business from his family, takes over. Um, some banking. He, he winds up owning um, one of the major Cleveland newspapers. Um, he's got a hand in, in all kinds of businesses and trusts. Um, and eventually he becomes a senator uh, in, in 1897. Uh, but he, he doesn't seem to have had much immediate interest. He never holds office in Ohio, for instance, uh, much immediate interest in, in holding office, more wanting to have um, some power behind the throne, so to speak. And if you look at older political histories, or if you look at the political cartoons and some of the um, democratic propaganda of this era, people like Hannah were held up as the sort of um, dollar men behind big business that was then behind politicians, like the kind of key figures of corruption in American politics. So if you think about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, right, <laughs> the kind of, this was Mark Twain and, and Charles Warner wrote um, in 1873, the Gilded Age, it's all about corruption. And in the popular imagination of that period, that corruption took the form of people like uh, a Hannah. I think his college classmate uh, or high school classmate was, you know, John Rockefeller. So like the connections are there all over the place. Um, the, the robber barons, the, the big money interests, the people who are buying off folks. Um, one interesting tidbit that historians have said about Hannah's relationship with McKinley is that early on, it was thought that Hannah dominated that. When we looked at the records, we didn't have as many papers to look at. But now historians are much more of the disposition that actually McKinley was more in charge of that relationship and that McKinley kind of directed Hannah uh, and, and knew what he wanted. And though McKinley didn't um, often express those things, and that's something interesting for us to talk about, he's been a little bit of an enigma in political history. Um, it does seem much more clear that Hannah was not pulling the strings nearly as much as people intuited or uh, arguments against special interests seem to suggest, you know. Man, I, I look forward to diving more into that. I'd love to hear uh, about Hannah. What was he interested in? What were his wants? Why is he, you know, starting to dabble into politics? What He wants to be the power behind the throne to do what? Yeah, well, those are, that's a kind of good question. Um, and maybe a little unclear in some ways. I mean, certainly he's, he's uh, very invested in Republican politics. Um, he, he very briefly served, doesn't see any combat in the Civil War. So unlike somebody like McKinley, who, who did, yeah. um, who left with the rank of major and was often called major by, by, by a lot of folks, um, that the Civil War experience was part of what generated his republicanism. Um, he, he had a genuine hatred for Democrats. And this is something that's really common for those people who were kind of alive and kicking and, and involved in the politics of the Civil War period. Uh, so part of his belief, particularly in 1896 and why McKinley, is that Democrats now led by a fusion with William Jennings Bryan seem to be offering a very anti-big business, um, anti-large government 
uh, sort of perspective that one undercut his own self-interest, obviously, but also seemed to undercut the kind of longer standing goals of the Republican Party, states' rights. You know, you've seen the rise of Jim Crow. It's not like people like McKinley or Hannah were way out there as racial egalitarians. Don't get me wrong. But um, they certainly still subscribe to some of the core principles of the Republican Party. And they knew that there was systematic disfranchisement in the American South. They knew that Brian had locked up like 112 electoral votes because people right. who were eligible weren't allowed to vote. Right. right. So, so that seemed fundamentally undemocratic. And you can find in the statements of people like Hannah a, a really firm belief that sort of the end of democracy was nigh if the Democrats keep winning elections, if people like Brian can get their you know, sort of free silver plus states rights passed uh, and agrarians hold power. So, so Mark Hanna is motivated by this beautiful marriage of uh, it, what, what is right and just and also what's good for his pocketbook. Yep, <laughs> it's yeah. just beautiful when that works out. Totally. You might say that's a truism for like all American politics. Right. <laughs> right. At, at what point did Mark Hanna start thinking this McKinley guy can become president? And, and what becomes his motive for really helping fuel that rise? Uh, and then what draws them together? Yeah, so, McKin so McKinley serves in Congress uh, a bunch of terms in the 18 1880s. He, becomes, he gets booted out in a wave of, of Democrats. He immediately becomes governor of Ohio. Right around then, so that's 1891, um, he's really establishing a relationship with somebody like Hannah and other funders in the Republican Party and in the Ohio uh, sort of um, elite uh, party politics uh, circles. Um, but the big thing that really transforms this moment, as we're thinking about the election of 1896 and Hannah's role in thinking, hey, McKinley can do it, is 1894. Uh, so we got 18, we already got 1890, we got the McKinley tariff in there. We got 1893, uh, which is this big panic, which, which sort of destroys the American economy. Um, and really changes party politics in this moment. We can get to that more. But so there's this, this, there's this big panic, big depression, uh, second worst in U.S. history. The Great Depression is, is the, what we call, you know, what was called in you know, 1929, 1930 to differentiate it from 1893, although we tend not to think that way. Um, but 1894 is this really important moment where it's, it's the biggest transition in, in party politics in a midterm election in U.S. political history. Um, so you get something like Democrats lose 113 seats. It's amazing. Um, it, you know, so uh, Republicans really take off. And political scientists often refer to this as part of a really broader, important realignment in party politics. And the kinds of people who are doing a lot of robust campaigning are like McKinley and like um, Teddy Roosevelt is sort of new out on the stump in that period. And McKinley does, you know, I looked it up before we we're coming on. He does uh, on the order of 371 speeches across 16 states in 1890. Wow. Um, you know, so when you think about in 1896, he's going up against Brian, who's out there stumping all over the place. McKinley has just done it. He's proven he can do so-called retail politics yeah. that way. He's actually a great orator. Uh, people don't give him much credit for that. He's good. He's a good speaker. Uh, he's good at um, obfuscating points too, being a little bit vague to, to not um, to not take too tough or, or of a stand. Uh, good at calibrating for different audiences, uh, and so people like him are why Republicans sweep so rapidly uh, through the House, and then they begin this ascent, which is really multi generational up until. Um, up until the depression, you get the election of 1912, you get some Democrats coming in, but really Republicans start to dominate uh, American politics again in this period. And, and it's coming out of 1894 that you see that. Well, it, it's funny to talk about 1894 being that giant swing, because if I remember right, four years earlier, 1890 was like a giant swing the other way where mm -hmm. all the Republicans got kicked out. <laughs> yep. So they're just swinging all over the place back then. 
Um, yeah, but part of that's this, these, these cyclic recessions. Um, you know, th- that's a piece of it. The, the, the electorate is not happy with, with the federal government and it's, it's more modest sized role. I mean, we, we still see that today, but in that era, the federal government didn't have much control. You know, it's not like it's Grover Cleveland's fault that there's a panic of 1893, for instance. Right. He's not even in office when it starts. Yeah, the Fed doesn't exist yet. Like all these tools that at least now you can kind of point to and be like, hey, why don't you pull that lever? The lever doesn't exist yet. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And then you also see these debates over civil service reform, which I know you've talked about on, on different podcasts, but it's like, hey, you know, the, the people are turning over their partisan hacks. Uh, and so par- part of the shift then in, in the late 1890s is towards more of that civil service reform, more robust federal government. And as it, getting back to that earlier point, it's about these young Republicans who want to see that. Uh, they're not as happy with the shift since the 1880s towards big business and towards sort of partisan partisanship in the Republican Party. Now, they're still, you know, um, aided and and uh, s- significantly by people like Hannah, right, and big industrialists who turn out a ton of money for this campaign in 1896. Nevertheless, they've got a little bit more trust busting in them and a little bit more thinking that you know, we need a you know meritocratic civil service to run things. We need a more robust federal government to smooth out you know economic downturns and that sort of thing. So, so what are going to be the big issues in 1896? You, you've mentioned a little bit of history, like 1890, there was a big party swing one way, 1893, a huge res- depression, 1894, a huge swing the other way. So in 1896, what are the issues that everybody's talking about? Well, let's, I'll tick off a few. We could dive in if you want. Right. Exactly. So obviously the tariff, right? So the can't big campaign promises by McKinley, tariff, tariff, tariff. Um, and you know, the opposite coming from the Brian camp, we need less of that. We need more free silver. So currency is the other big issue with free silver, get off, you know, have bimetallism. Um, this is very popular. We could talk more about that, but this is very popular in the West and, and amongst agrarians. Um, this, this question with, with the economy still suffering, you know, how do you aid working men, particularly uh, yeoman farmers, people who have a lot of debt? Um, so they want to inflate the currency. They want a lot more currency out there. Uh, and, and that'll make their debt less effectively, even if it also inflates prices. Right. But of course, that hurts businesses. That hurts banks. You inflate the currency. Uh, right. You, uh, so um, that, that's a big piece of it. The currency. We could talk about that. Right. The cross of gold speech. And Brian, you know, he's really charismatic on this. And it's very appealing. Um, and that's also animating people like Hannah to not like that position, both for their pocketbooks and out of principle. Um, then there's also race. Uh, this is the era, right? The rise of Jim Crow. We've got now beginning to have uh, widespread lynchings. I think um, by some counts in 1898, you had the highest per capita number of lynchings in the U.S. Um, that's becoming more obvious. The Republican Party is um, against that, obviously. They, they speak to that, but they're fairly wishy-washy on taking a strong stand because, of course, that would require something like federal troops or federal oversight, particularly in the South. But there are also lynchings going on border states in the North. So race, tariff currency. Uh, those are all big ones. Let's see. Um, labor, another enormous issue in this era, right? So 1894 uh, also has the Pullman strikes. This is where Eugene Debs, the five-time candidate for uh, president for the Socialist Party, uh, starts really making his stand. He's the head of the American Railway Union. So you've got lots of strikes happening in this period, um, roiling strikes that they're being put down by groups like the Pinkertons. So there's there's actual violence out there. There's anarchists uh, are dashing around. In fact, the anarchist who kills, American-born anarchist who kills 
Uh, McKinley in this era is, is um, you know, of that sort of stripe. Uh, so how labor relations will be will be um, dealt with, uh, what the Republican Party's position will be in navigating kind of between the Scylla and Charybdis of labor and, and, and working men on the one hand and big business and industry that they're trying to, trying to support on the other. And their usual argument is something like full employment will solve all problems, that plus trickle down, uh, which sounds a little bit uh, familiar uh, to modern ears, probably. Um, Another piece of the puzzle, civil service reform, it's been sort of going on back and forth, 1870s, 1880s. McKinley kind of shoots for a middle ground there. Uh, he rolls back uh, some positions that Cleveland had, had allowed um, to, to become uh, ones that were, were uh, for um, political appointees. Um, so there, there's a variety of these things uh, in that era. Um, th th those are some of the big ones. You know, the, I think the big irony of this moment, if we're going to the 30,000 foot view on the election is um, when he comes into office, one of the first things that Cleveland says to McKinley is, watch out, war is on the horizon. Either with Venezuela, uh, uh, regarding the boundaries of Venezuela with Great Britain, which is a huge thing, um, and protecting uh, Republican democratic rights in the, in the hemisphere, which the U.S. had pledged itself to do since the Monroe Doctrine in 1823. And uh, of course, with Cuba, the roiling rebellion, insurrection in the island of Cuba, humanitarian um, atrocities going on there. Uh, but McKinley, the whole campaign is on domestic issues by and large. Uh, so uh, as with so many presidencies and so many campaigns, the thing that the president thinks they'll get to focus on, the administration they even build to do that, often winds up deviating entirely based on different circumstances. <laughs> totally a great point. So, so it sounds like there's five issues that he's campaigning on. None of them are foreign policy, but he's right. got you know, tariffs. And at the moment, he's he's high tariffs. Yep. He's got currency at the moment. He's gold standard. Um, and then I think you mentioned labor, race. Yep. I'm already blanking on the fifth one. And civil service. And civil service. So civil yep. service. Pro reform. I mean, everybody's pro reform right then, right? It's for middle ground reform. So he wants to get rid of the folks that Cleveland put in and, and then and then do some reform, right? <laughs> got it. Got it. And then labor. What did he say his solution on labor was? What's his position on what to do about the, the, the inequality there? So labor's labor's interesting. Um, so one of the things you get is that he he winds up one way that he appeases labor is he puts in Terrence, Terrence Powderly, who is one of who is a, a former head of the Knights of Labor. He puts him in um, as a commissioner of immigration, um, and one of the positions of the Republican Party in this period, which is rather ignominious, but it's shared by lots of people on what you'd call the political left, like you know, labor uh, labor activists, um, is to limit immigration. So. Um, so he, he's, he's for limiting immigration to attempt to uh, generate conditions for higher wages for, um, for labor. On the other hand, he's against kind of uh, xenophobia and nativism. He, he takes a few actually pretty principled and strong stands in the state of Ohio as nativism was rising in the early 1890s. Um, so, you know, again, he's the, the Republican Party of the 1890s and early, early 1900s is really trapped between, you know, sort of a kind of egalitarian set of principles that they inherit from the abolitionists. Yeah. So, you know, to treat people fairly, all men created equal. Uh, and then there's a kind of set of principles that are protectionist, so somewhat insular, but pro big business um, and aligned for the, you know, for the larger conglomerations of people and groups like, you know, corporations against individuals, sort of right to contract sort of thing. So, uh, so he, he skirts this middle line, but he appeases labor a bit there. And then frankly, I guess I would say as a historian of this period, 
his get out of jail free card is war. And so once the U.S. goes to war in 1898, patriotism kind of dominates and the regular American working man, as in so many eras, and I don't mean this pejoratively at all, regular American citizen tends to rally around the flag. And that's what you get. So labor, labor folks are pretty happy, more or less. And the economy is booming. But by the time he's elected, the headline on many, his second election in 1900, yeah. many of the headlines say champion of progress, William McKinley, right. champion of prosperity, William McKinley. Did he have, uh, you said one of those five issues was race relations. Did he have a platform on what to do about the South? Yeah, so it's interesting. The The Republican Party platform um, is about bringing the South and the North together and saying that, that, the, that the old um, tensions and, and conflict are gone. It's, it's the uniting of gray and blue. Um, and you see this in some of the campaign pins and other, and other elements. And he's pretty... Um, He's he's pretty risk averse, frankly. He's he's very um, terse in what he has to say and measured, and does not go out on a limb. And you know, if you're if you want to cast blame from a modern sensibility, there are plenty of folks who are taking much stronger stands on questions of of uh, of, of racial injustice in the American South, for instance, in this era, um, and even within the Republican Party. And he's not one of them. And that, that's one of the other divides with those younger Republicans I was talking about. Um, so some of them uh, are very, say, for immigration restriction, but also for rights for African-Americans. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of complexities to Republican Party politics then. But that's that's a key one. So they argue, you know, lynching, it says something like there should be no lynching in America and we're bringing the North and South together and the South can govern itself. Right. Like these are mutually contradictory in this era. And yet that's what they say, in part because this is again, this is crass politics. One on one McKinley, Hannah, those folks, they want to peel off a couple southern states. Yeah. Yeah. They don't in 1896, uh, but they actually start to get closer than than you might imagine. Um, and and in and in 1900, there it's an even bigger win for 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 McKinley, uh, and they're they're peeling off some more folks. Again, that's more war related, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked all about McKinley, the issues, his positions on him. I'd love to talk about his opponent, William Jennings Bryan. You you brought him up a couple times before. The super charismatic guy. He often gets a lot of praise as one of the greatest orders in U.S. history, and he is. Nothing like what the Democratic Party was before him. Also, uh, I think if I remember right, Cleveland even like silently is like, I hope McKinley beats you know this next Democrat. Yeah, well, uh, so uh, quickly while we're doing gold stuff again, um, when when the economy's tanking, Cleveland comes out for the gold standard because his thinking is that that will mollify big business and and the psychology of the market is very well known in that at that point, you know. Um, but it, that, that that doesn't help. So, but if you think about that quick contrast, when you get Brian in free silver, you know, um, it, it's a it's a it, and currency being one of the top issues of the day. Of course, Cleveland is 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 not enthusiastic, at least on those grounds in that moment. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, Brian is an amazing figure. There's a tr- fantastic book if people are interested by Michael Kazin, a godly hero. Uh, really, I think the best book on Brian um, on his on his politics, on religion, you know, on, on his views on the economy, all kinds of stuff. Um, but in any case, so uh, Brian's about 36 in yeah. He's barely eligible to run. Yeah. Um, whereas McKinley seems old in comparison, was only about 53. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a, a, and McKinley, as I said, had been doing a lot of speaking. He was known as a good orator. You know, it's unfair to say um, that, that it's a, a total, you know, clash of, of contrasting styles, uh, although the campaign is very different. Um, so, but Brian, Brian, uh, 
you know, uh, his main positions are coming from the populist left. Um, so this is a fusion party moment in 1896 where the populists support the Democratic nominee. The Democratic nominee is also the populist party's uh, nominee. Um, and it's a, so as a fusion campaign, um, it's a really important one in American politics. You know, there's very few moments where we've had third and fourth parties that were viable. Um, this 1880s into 1890s, the, the sort of Omaha platform of 1892, the rise of populists is a really powerful force in the American South and especially West and parts of the Midwest. Um, this is their moment to shine and Brian's their candidate. Um, the problem is the Democratic Party is riven by the sort of civil rights and gold folks. Uh, they don't necessarily like everything about uh, the populace either. Um, and then uh, the Republican Party ha also has civil rights in it uh, in the West um, uh, and upper Midwest, uh, though not as not not as many. It's not as riven. Anyway, so uh, Brian, Brian's a fascinating figure, amazing speaker. You know, one of the things that historians say about his barnstorming in that era was that it actually undercut him. That in some ways, his capacity to go out and do so much speaking uh, made him seem like a bit in this in that era, a kind of fly by night, not as serious. Um, now, later in his career, he becomes secretary of state. You know, he runs for president the, the next time as well, 1900. Um, he's, he's definitely seen as a kind of establishment um, politician with a lot of experience. But in 1896, he's a newcomer. He's an outsider. He's a great speaker. But is it fluff is the question. And that's certainly what Hannah messages in, in an amazing amount, millions of pamphlets and, and newspaper ads thrown out against him uh, and, and, and speakers. Uh, and that's really the contrast that you see with McKinley. McKinley runs a so-called front porch campaign. Campaign, but not like the old ones. Um, this wasn't your question, but I know we're going to talk about it. So. We will talk about it. Yeah, let's go yeah. it. Sure. Yeah. So, but um, I'll stick to Brian just for a little bit, a little right, bit longer. Right. You know. So, um, so he's he's for uh, free silver, free coins of silver, sixteen to one, fifteen to one. So th these are the ratios that are being debated in this era. Uh, the the problem was, you know, what what would the federal government? Um, how would the federal government buy this the, this silver, and would it be coined? If that's if that's clear enough, I don't know if we've we've dealt with this in the other in other podcasts. It's a whole nother long jag to get into yeah. uh, currency issues. Um, but the sort of cross of gold and uh, the crown of thorns elements aren't just about that. They're about corruption. They're about the role of big business in in American life. Um, you know, in, in this era, people talked a lot about the tramp uh, follows the train. Um, that that poverty and progress were going hand in hand, uh, and that that the challenge in American society in an industrializing, modernizing world, and, and here a data point is really useful. In 1880, the U.S. is majority rural. In, in 1920, the U.S. is majority urban. People living in the 1890s see this happening around them. They see themselves being immiserated by moving to the cities, having wage work, being unemployed cyclically whenever the industries you know, crumbled or through speculation, you know, uh, quickly losing their money. And in fact, the 1893 panic, McKinley loses almost all his money. If it weren't for Hannah, he, he might have been destitute. Um, and so, you know, people are seeing this. And, and so Brian's campaign isn't just on something like Cross of Gold, which sounds great and, and fascinating and interesting, but it really goes back to sort of biblical principles. And, and that's, you know, you see this much further. He's in the Scopes trial, as you probably know, and you'll get to, you know, he's, he's the prosecutor there. Um, and, and he believes in these kind of biblical core principles about um, the working man's rights, that every human being has, you know, dignity, and that, that modern corporations and industry were depriving them of that. So it's a really a strong kind of a message. It's not the kind of message that Grover Cleveland put out there, right? Even though he was a reform leader and, you know, had some, some, some really sort of labor oriented beliefs in some ways, nowhere near 
what Brian put out there. Um, so anti-corruption, anti-big business, you know, for the working man, for uh, for farmers, you know, and he even says things that are, that pit the urban and rural against each other. And this is a in the in the cross of gold speech, he says something like, you know, burn down your cities, uh, but as long as the farms survive, the cities will grow back. But burn down the farms, and they'll never be cities. That sounds very Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How kind of modern progressive is he? And, and what I mean by that is I always hear the talk of, you know, he's pro-bimetallism, pro some of these these uh, other things we're talking about, you know, anti-tariff. You, the progressive party, if I remember right, they also believed in things like eight-hour workdays or at least limited workdays, you know. He's supported, if I remember right, by Eugene Debs, who there's not a socialist party yet. There's going to be next election, but right now Debs is like support Brian. Is Brian supporting these other things, these social safety nets, or is that not an idea that exists yet? You know, that's an interesting question. He is supporting social safety nets um, in the sense, well, let me let me pull that back. Sure. You know, you're right to ask this question. So the, the problem for the Democratic Party or the Populist Party in this is in this moment is that some believe in a stronger federal or state government to do that kind of work, and others do not. And so if you think about why the Democratic Party has locked up these 100 plus electoral votes in the South, it's because the states can do what they want. Part of that is disenfranchising people of color um, and privileging uh, white people and men in particular, white men. Um, but part of that is also enacting different kinds of policies in different areas, including you know, local progressive reform, things that are popular like prohibition, for instance, in some states and unpopular in others. Um, so they've got a tricky sort of road to hoe there. Um, and what you see out of Brian in 1900 or in, 18, in 1896 is a little different from 1900. And historians often argue that, that um, he got exposed on the campaign because he had to come up with different kinds of answers to these questions. So you do see him for uh, making some cases for minimum wages, for instance, uh, for limiting hours, total numbers of hours. Um, but you don't see the kind of argument for a strong federal government that you, do, you get by 1900 from the Republican Party platform and by 1904, you know, with, with uh, coming out of the Mueller v. Oregon case and other things at the Supreme Court level, you actually have, you know, real uh, pushback against, um, you know, terrible working conditions. So he's for better working conditions, but he's not operationalizing how that will happen exactly. Um, so that's, that's therein lies the rub. And that's the problem for Democratic Party politics in this era, because a strong federal government is something they can't possibly condone. Uh, and and weak, uh, a, a weak federal government is what they're for, except in for certain cases. And that's why also Brian is a bit of an outlier from somebody like Cleveland, because he's farther along that path for a stronger federal government. So you see like these these terrible quotes from Cleveland in, in 1894, you know, we're, we're not going to help the working man, right? This, right? this panic is not, the government, you have to support the, I, I mean, this is a bad paraphrase, but he says something like the working man should passionately support the government and the government will not support the working man. Right, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, the government doesn't exist to support the people, the people exist to support the government. You know, something very much like that. Yeah, just very like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Whereas Brian would very much say the opposite, right? Yeah. That, that the government needs to support the people the people's inherent dignity, et cetera, through policies like, you know, free, you know, free coinage of silver, uh, bimetallism, um, you know, uh, restrictions on trusts. But then what are the next steps? Uh, and and you, don't, you don't fully get there. You definitely don't, where you especially don't get there, and I don't know how much you focused on this um, in other podcasts, where you really don't get there is in the party platforms. Mm. So 
the Democratic Party platform has a hard time on, on fusion in this moment. What does that mean to bring you know, effectively populist positions into this party that, that doesn't see quite eye to eye uh, with the populist party? Um, and the Republican Party, for that matter, I mean, I actually pulled it up for this as we think about McKinley. Um, their platform, you know, says something like for the first time since the Civil War, we've seen the American people uh, witnessing the calamitous consequences of full and unrestricted democratic control of the government. And then they say we're pledging ourselves to high protection, high protective tariffs, because that'll solve all the problems. Totally. It's nice when you have a simple solution like that. For sure. Uh, so so uh, McKinley, certainly more the big business guy. Brian starting to freak big business out with some of these new ideas. Even if they're not 100 percent thought out, they're thought out enough to be scary. And this is going to help McKinley raise just gobsmacking amounts of money. Can you tell me more about that? How does he turn the, 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 the differences in their opinion into just a huge money advantage? Yeah, well, the first is the most obvious that we've already covered. I mean, Brian is a threat <laughs> to big business, <laughs> bottom line. Uh, so they're going to support any other candidate. And, and as most political historians note in this period, it just felt like a Republican victory, um, believe it or not. You know, so Brian, very charismatic. People like him. There's a real chance that Democrats could win. This, this, fusion, this fusion party thing is happening. But when you get through the, the panic, you get through the, the midterms, you know, it's 1893, 1894, suddenly, it's, you know, even though Brian is a very good candidate, a moderate Republican who's very measured, like McKinley takes all the boxes, um, is, is a perfect kind of person to appease, especially Eastern big business folks from banks and industry, um, you know, heavy industry as well as light industry, which is an important um, distinction. As, when you get to 1898, for instance, you know, uh, banks don't like the uh, uncertainty. Big banks, uh, big industry don't like the uncertainty of what's going on in Cuba. But the smaller industries, um, light industry, the ones that aren't producing, say, big machinery, for instance, they don't care much about war, for instance. So special interests have different kinds of views about different sorts of crises, you might say. Uh, but it's very clear that Brian represents a crisis to uh, the big banks. So how does he how does he operationalize? This is where Hannah becomes a genius. So Hannah was a big uh, political uh, leader, you know, 1880s, 1890s, Ohio Republican Party. He's there as a force behind some of the other, other Ohio presidents. But now putting his weight, his muscle behind um, McKinley, you know, he, first, he's brilliant on uh, this front porch campaign style. He's brilliant on pamphlets and leaflets and having speakers go out. He's brilliant on, you know, just inundating newspapers across the country with, with McKinley messages. Every time McKinley gives a speech on his front, por front porch, some version of that goes to the press within 24 hours. So he's, he's, and you know, remember, he's also a journalist. He owns this newspaper. Like he gets it. He gets it in fundamentally new ways. And this is the era of you know, the penny press and yellow journalism, right? This is the era. This is really the rise of that. And Hannah's got his finger on the pulse of it. Um, and a part of that is getting the right message out to the right elites. Uh, and he literally taxes different businesses. So he, he pretty much says he goes to people and he says, like, you know, you have to effectively tithe to this campaign. I remember, you know, uh, contributions weren't being policed then like they have right. been in the late 20th century. Uh, so you're you see a huge flow of money coming in. You see Hannah really turning arms, twisting arms and saying, look, if Brian wins. You know, you're clearly going to lose. You've already had these problems. He gives them copies of particular speeches that McKinley's made that will appeal to them, uh, you know. And and he's just a he's just a juggernaut of you know he's the he's one of the very first, maybe arguably the best bundler uh, in nineteenth century political history uh, in, in the least corrupt sense of the word. Um, <laughs> uh, 
And I know there's been a lot of corruption in the politics you've handled. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thus far, uh, so so he he makes businesses, he taxes them effectively um, from the convention onward, uh, and he gives them what they want in terms of McKinley's words, and that's that's a big part of of this successful campaign. And I, I'm curious, is he just going after big businesses? What's the divide, say, between big businesses and small businesses? You know, if you're like a mom and pop, you know, shop trying to get by, does he not care about you? You're going to get buried by this? Is he just going to the Rockefellers and, you know, the, the so forth? Yeah. So it starts at the top. But this is also the era of the rise of modern philanthropy and, and modern thinking about philanthropy, actually, this, this era into the early 20th century. So obviously, a lot of these robber barons are also philanthropists. Yes. Big dollar amounts. Yeah. But the other piece of that puzzle is what becomes the model known as the March of Dimes model, just getting five yeah. cents, 10 cents from regular people. Yeah. So if you look at letters in this area, you look at party contributions, you see lots of 10 cent kind of things. You don't just see these big checks. Yeah. And, and so in one um, data point that helps illuminate that is, you know, so the front porch campaign sounds like McKinley's just hanging out on his front porch. Yeah. That is not true. You know, they have a machine there. So something like 46 uh, troops escort the people who want to come visit him on his front porch in, uh, in um, Canton, Ohio. They, they bring him, uh, they bring them from the rail station. They get a, a report ahead of time who's coming. He's able to, to say who's missing from their families there. He's doing his homework. He's calibrating his message to the delegates who are coming. Um, there, some of those individuals are giving small donations when they arrive, uh, supporting the party, Republican Party, or supporting the campaign itself. Um, so there's that piece of the puzzle there, you know. Um, so it's it's big and it's small, um, and it and all these people are coming through. You know, estimates are 700 or 800,000 Americans came through um, just that front porch, uh, just over the course of the campaign. So you know, spring, summer, fall, 1896. Uh, that's a remarkable number of folks, yeah. you know, and they're coming from uh, reports are, you know, I, I haven't corroborated this in my own research, but virtually every state. Um, so you have lots of people who love McKinley, love the Republican Party are coming, giving their, you know, 10 cents, as well as the big, big ones who are, you know, the, uh, the ones we're all a little bit suspicious of. And they absolutely were in the Gilded Age of Progressive Era, right? The big money trust. Um, but so he's getting it from all of those areas. And they're able to then say, you know, the working Republican from Massachusetts supports McKinley. He's giving, uh, you know, it's always important. Yeah. 10 cents a month. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even if, you know, his uh, does not have the ear of, of Hannah or, or, or those others. Um, but, but that is also emblematic of the kind of support the Republican Party had and why they go off to such a resounding victory in this election. So what, what does McKinley do with all that money? You mentioned all, all these printouts earlier, the newsletter. Like, is, is that what it is? Is there anything new that hadn't been done before that he's like, whoa, I have a lot of money. Let's have fun with this. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, the the main things are what I said in terms of calibrating the message. I mean, it's so um, historian Lewis Gould has said that uh, this is the first modern campaign. Um, that may be overstepping, it may not, but it has all the, the, all the hallmarks of a modern campaign, a huge war chest, uh, right, a, can a strategy targeted to different populations who are coming through, right, those delegations, knowing them well. You know, once McKinley gets into office, you see some very similar things happening. So how he uses the money in 1896 is similar to how he uses the office of the presidency in 1897. That is, he's great with journalists. He invites them in. In the White House, he sets up an area where journalists for the first time can camp out, hang out on the second floor. Um, so he's, he's good with journalists. He's, he's good at getting the message out. The Hannah vision is to, to print, you know, to overwhelm the country with images, 
they're great on political cartoons. So there's one that, that um, there's a couple that I've, I've pulled up, but one that I've uh, here right now, it's a caricature of the Democratic uh, campaign headquarters. And it, this perfectly encapsulates some of the messages we've already been talking about. Uh, on the Democratic campaign headquarters, it says things like, vote for free silver and be prosperous like us in Japan or Mexico or China or South America or India, or Guatemala. Those are literally all the kinds of things with very caricatured racist images of the people. In oh those my countries. God, I bet. Yes. and But the idea there is that he's getting out that message to people who may be semi-literate as well, right? All they need to see there is the, these images in the Democratic campaign headquarters. So it's, it's hitting every sort of demographic way before the thinking about that. And then in 1897, similar things, you know, McKinley looks hard at... Um, what is possible to know in that era before modern professional polling. So he cares about public opinion. Um, and that's why you see there's this slightly, let's call it compromised stance on the gold standard, uh, both in the party platform and where he's headed, which says, hey, um, we will allow bimetallism and some coinage of silver if by international agreement, we can work that out with other countries. And, <laughs> and as soon as McKinley's in office and that, you know, yeah. It doesn't matter as much. And people maybe don't have their eye on the ball that as much that disappears. Totally. So by 1900, the U.S. is on the gold standard for sure. Um, but how, how do they use the money? Two million or more pamphlets are sent out. Uh, it's, it's an enormous number. Um, they've got a lot of journalists in their pocket. Remember, this is the partisan press then, too. Yeah. So they've got a lot of journalists writing puff pieces. You know, um, they've got they've actually got, pre, uh, you know, organs of you know, real newspapers in their pocket, you know, Republican Party newspapers. So they're get, getting the message to those folks and then they're generating new versions of those messages out to their audiences. It's a really kind of seamless public relations, public communication strategy. And that that transcends and moves into the administration. And that's why it's right to think of it as kind of at least having all the harm, hallmarks of a modern campaign and the modern presidency. All right. I, I got a hypothetical for you next. And, and that is, you know, uh, McKinley, he had like seven times as much money as William Jennings Bryan, if it had been even, you know, if they had been operating on the same budget, who do you think wins that 1896 election? Is it still McKinley? You know, it's a good question. Historians like to shy away from counterfactuals. As I I'm know, sure but we'd love yeah. to ask y'all. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun too. You know, I, I think, um, I think Bryan had a kind of firewall that he was working against. I think he certainly could have won more total votes. Uh, and this might have been much more of a squeaker, like some of the previous elections that, that you've been working through on, on the podcast. Um, I, it strikes me that um, this was a year for Republicans because of the economic downturn in 1893, the, the, the signal sent by the midterm elections. You know, not every time midterm election shifts um, do, do parties shift, but, but they very often do. That's, that's a good marker in U.S. political history. So I, I think this could have been a lot tighter without, without the campaign war chest, maybe without the genius of Hannah's strategy, too. Um, uh, but I, I suspect this was a year for Republicans. I, I suppose the other counterfactual would be what if they'd run somebody different? What if they'd run a Blaine who would have divided the Republican Party? What if they yeah. could have run a young Teddy Roosevelt? He wasn't, you know, nobody was thinking that way then. Yeah. Um, that would be interesting. I'm not sure. Or what if they'd run one of the old abolitionists? There's a guy, uh, George Frisbee Hoare, the senior senator from uh, Massachusetts. You know, yeah. what would that have meant? Uh, what if he'd taken a stronger stance on anti-lynching or race in the South? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting counterfactuals there. And I'll give you one more. It's probably for a future podcast. Yeah. Uh, the big question of the McKinley presidency is what if he would had another term? Sure. Um, yeah. And what he's signaling in 1900 
is he's going to be tougher on big business. One of the last speeches he gives before he's assassinated is, you know, I, I want to revisit the antitrust laws. Um, so some of this stuff we're seeing in 1896, maybe after there's all the prosperity that comes and, and after the war, you know, perhaps he was a more flexible thinker, more likely to shift towards a progressive mindset or a different set of agenda items than you, we can possibly give him credit for. It's a little like what would have happened with JFK. Yeah, uh, that, always a great counterfactual. What if someone had lived? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, what is the lasting legacy of McKinley's 1896 campaign? Hmm. Well, so a few things uh, and his presidency. I, I really want to lump that sure. in there. Sure. Yeah, think, put them together. Sure. You know, so you've got, uh, well, here, here, I'll give you a, a paint a picture. March 1897, uh, his first inaugural. It's the first inaugural that's captured by Edison's kinetoscope. It's the first one you can see. All right, it's the first one that's being reported by telegraph and and and, and uh, immediate uh, sort of telephone communications. You're getting real information, real images from that day. Forty thousand people show up. It's a sunny day. It's the it's the first time that the president is ensconced in a like plastic box. It's glass then, but you know, um, it, it's a, it is a, it marks a real change of eras. The the presidency uh, of McKinley and it you know the the transformation of U.S. foreign policy and domestic politics. Um, and the campaign, I think, is emblematic of that. So, you know, having a modern kind of bundler uh, political genius, a Karl Rove type, if you will, uh, with, with Hannah. Um, and the, uh, and I, I can't I can't stop myself from saying, you know, uh, McKinley offered Hannah a spot in his cabinet. Um, and Hannah said something to the effect of, oh, that'll just confirm everybody's suspicions about me. Uh, we can't do that. I'm better off outside. And then when he appoints Sherman, um, then uh, Hannah takes a Senate, a Senate position in 1897. Yep. So, yep. but I mean, that seems actually to me the height of genius. He got an even higher office. Um, uh, but in any case, what are the what are the main takeaways? You know, look, newspaper campaigning, modern bundling, this front uh, porch campaign that is not the antiquated kind, but a really kind of targeted approach to that 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 uh, has a streamlined, consistent message, but also can alter it enough. Um, you, you have a relationship with the press that he builds throughout his presidency. Um, you know, once he's in office, he moves he moves around a lot. He travels a lot. He's more like Brian giving speeches all over the place. Um, so he's in touch with the people. Uh, he, he you know, he takes compromise measures on a number of topics, as we talked about, you know, it's labor, it's civil service, um, it's race. Uh, he's he's not um, easily pinned down as extreme. And that's really, you know, if you look at any uh, presidential campaign in the 20th century, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is tacking to the middle, right? And this is exactly what McKinley's doing. It's partly why he's so successful because Brian can't tack to, there's no middle for Brian. Right? <laughs> right. It's not possible. Um, so I, I think, you know, what you see in this moment is the rise of the modern presidency um, in all of its, you know, sort of robust glory and all of the perils that come with it. So the other piece of that is, you know, he's a micromanager um, in, the, in the war in 1898. He's listening hourly to what's going on. Yeah. Um, he really cares about these communications. He, he will take his pen to things that are going out, you know, after those, um, those front porch uh, rallies and conversations. So, uh, and that is part of the rise of the imperial presidency, which we tend to think of as a piece of Teddy Roosevelt's legacy. But you might yeah. say that the foundation here is McKinley, modern presidency, imperial presidency, a kind of, you know, as political scientists say, a campaign that is now president-centered not party centered. Yeah. So if you go back to previous eras, like who are the Democrats going to choose? Well, they got a solid South, but they're going to have a hard time in the U S in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. Now it's, you know, Brian and McKinley, 
it's an, it, there, there is a Democratic Party, but that's a fusion one. There's populists there. And the Republicans are trying to peel off folks. So this is a, this is a new change, a sort of individual presidency-centered uh, political campaigning. It's not like the parties don't matter a hell of a lot because they do. But McKinley it personifies a kind of presidency and presidential sort of um, character that I think we then see uh, progressively in different kinds of presidencies moving forward. I, that's an awesome call out of that point there. Um, last question I got for you. What lessons in leadership do you think we could learn from how McKinley ran his campaign? That's a good one. You know, so one thing that's interesting about the history of McKinley is people have had very dramatically different takes on him. Uh, what kind of leader he was, you know, was he manipulated by Hannah or did he manipulate Hannah as we now tend to think? Um, did he have core positions or not? You know, Teddy Roosevelt famously says something like he has no backbone, that uh, McKinley has no backbone. Um, others think that he had a, was really way too decisive, but behind closed doors. Um, so you see a lot of competing interpretations. And I think one kind of leadership lesson you might take from that um, is that McKinley was a pretty good listener. He was a little bit of a cipher at times. So he was good at giving people what they wanted. And so that's like 101 of retail politics, but also getting a sense of what the sort of zeitgeist was or getting a litmus test of what constituencies wanted or what was going on in a given moment. That's really important in leadership. I mean, we all need to learn to you know, be quiet and listen more. That's a good principle. Um, I think uh, another stance here was, um, though he had some ebbs and flows in this moment, you know, anti-corruption is a big part of American politics, and he's a pretty principled guy. Now, granted, there's this role of uh, special interest in the campaign and everything we've been talking about. There's a low level of corruption across American politics. Um, but you might argue that that we've now created a new baseline in American politics by the 1890s, and it's, it's not as fundamentally corrupt. Um, and so his core principles do dictate the kinds of outcomes that he seeks to as a politician. He's not as compromise oriented as some other folks have been. That, that's a little bit. So what, what about other lessons? I think um, in the campaign itself, one lesson is um, to find a good friend who hopefully has deep pockets <laughs> and good allies, right? That's true. I, every time I read a presidential biography, it, it seems like they have a friend who, who had a lot of money. <laughs> Uh, that's got to be part of it. Networks and connections, for sure. You can cultivate them. You don't have to have them growing up, that, that, you, know, you know, but you need to find them to, to be an effective presidential candidate. And, you know, related to that, I would say cultivate the press. Right. So one of the things that he's really smart at is getting to know, you know, journalists and um, and allying with them or at least recognizing that it's very important to not have an adversarial relationship with the press. And that translates to the White House. And that's you get the first modern press briefings, basically, in the McKinley White House. Uh, that hadn't happened to this point. Um, so, you know, cultivate the press, have good friends, listen more than you talk, or at least listen before you speak. Um, <laughs> and then sort of have the courage of your convictions um, seems to be part of it. Although I would say, you know, that's definitely a triangulation if you're a president, right? You know, you rarely find presidents or leading political officials who can fully articulate their principles because, you know, they'll alienate somebody, right? And right. in the 1890s, the Republican Party, as I said, you know, it's really has a tremendously hard time dealing with the fact that the American South is fundamentally undemocratic and racist yeah. and is killing Americans. And, um, you know, short of starting another civil war, what are the options? What are the available options? And you'll see this with Teddy Roosevelt. You'll see this with Taft. I mean, they, they're hamstrung. Yeah. 
Wow, that's a depressing one to end on. <laughs> but that, that's that's all my questions I had. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. If you'd like to hear more from Chris, please check out Promise and Peril, America in the Dawn of a Global Age, and give him a follow on Twitter at C-M-C-K Nichols. Nichols spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Thank you for your time, Chris. Hey, thanks so much, Kenny. Great to be on with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always so great to hear from you guys. It makes my day. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we will look into the international adventures of William McKinley, the annexation of Hawaii, the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, and the Boxer Rebellion in China. The U.S. is about to go imperial in a big, big way. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.